Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with Anthony DeRosa, who is an old school journalist. He's old school in that he fact checks, he delivers on deadline, and he'll cover any beat, whether it's like world news or local sports. But he broke in in the most modern and frankly inspiring way. Really what he did was he like showed his own stuff. He started his own Tumblr blogs, most notably Soup Soup, which tracked news. And he did not tell me if there is a Tumblr blog called News News that tracks soup. But he became so adept at covering all these different breaking news stories as they were evolving and fact-checking, which is so critical in this age, especially when they're breaking and you just don't know. But he managed to do it, and it became so popular with other reporters like David Carr, who's also an employee of the month, and you can listen to our interview. The Daily Show covered him, ABC News, NBC News. All of these people were going to him because he had created this self-styled newswire. So it's no surprise that Reuters, which is a traditional newswire, it's basically Reuters and AP, which had grown somewhat stodgy, I would say, scooped up Anthony DeRosa and he completely transformed them. And part of the things were things you can imagine. He wrote his own column. He brought in features like Tectonic. But it was also because of his conversations on Twitter with other newspapers that really transformed Reuters. And now he's gone on to this place, Circa, which this tech company stated that Anthony DeRose was their only choice for editor-in-chief. I think we should all live that way where everyone just wants you. That's it. You are the one and you are the one because you've proven your stuff again and again. I'm so thrilled to share our interview. And as you will see, he's just a regular guy like you and me. Seriously, enjoy my interview with Anthony DeRosa. I'm here with Anthony DeRosa, who is considered the king of Tumblr. And it's actually not a democracy, because I don't think anyone else has gotten that title. No, no. I, well, I don't know if I'm still the king of Tumblr. I, I think I may be too old to, to still be the king of Tumblr. <laughs> they, they have like an age cut Yeah, off. I think it's much more probably well-suited for a 16-year-old Instagram uh, superstar to be the, the queen of Tumblr. I just want you to know that I met someone and she referred to herself as an Instagram superstar. Yeah. She would probably be the new reigning queen of Tumblr at this point. That's that's more of the demographic, I think. But you're not allowed to call yourself that. You have to have someone else call (laughs) you. Well, I never call myself that. No, you had the New York Times and and David Karp call you that. It was Paul uh, Boughton, who uh, I think now is a freelance uh, writer, but at the time he was... He's writing for the New York Times. And I want to clarify, David Karp did not say that. He just said you were one of his favorite Tumblrs. He thought it was pretty, I was pretty groovy. He was pretty excited about it. <laughs> I think I'm more excited, and I do recommend that podcast listeners check out um, a video of you from the 2013 um, El Mundo Awards. El Mundo Awards, yes. Where you were named Journalist of the Year because it's like, you sound both official and like you could be the head of a drug cartel. Yeah, when like, <laughs> they're like, Anthony de Rosa. <laughs> Like, some, and some had me uh, written as De La Rosa, which uh, I'm often uh, mistaken for in certain countries. De La Rosa. De La Rosa, yeah. De La Rosa. <laughs> but I was very, very impressed with El Mundo. El Mundo, yes. Um, that must have been exciting to win that award. It was, yeah. I got to go to Madrid. I was only there for a day because uh, my wife is uh, currently very pregnant and I didn't want to take any chance that she could uh, deliver 
while I was there. So I flew up there and stayed 24 hours and flew right back right afterwards. Well, we should keep this so that your your uh, son <laughs> can now know why he was not allowed to have dual passports. <laughs> that his parents his parents could have gotten him a second passport. That's right. And um, and chose not to. Yeah, very cosmopolitan. <laughs> that will be official. And um, you met your wife on the the job. Yeah. At Reuters, correct? I did. I actually had known her for a couple of years before uh, we started dating, but I was far too shy to introduce myself. But um, I finally did that. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a very long romance, I guess you could say. But um, I I took a long time to finally get the uh, the courage up to uh, to ask her out. It reinforces my image, though, of who would be a social media expert and mm-hmm. someone who's actually quite social online but then very shy. I think that's usually how it works, though. Most uh, people who are uh, very good at social media tend to be very uh, introverted. It makes sense to me because I'll say I'm introverted and people are like, what? And I'm like, no, I'm mm-hmm. really actually like quite shy because yeah. it's a different mode that you're in I was going to ask like do you experience intimacy online differently because it is it is a form Mm -hmm. of intimacy when you're like having a conversation on Twitter with two people you become close to on yeah Um, it is a form of intimacy does it feel differently than like if you're with those two people in person you develop these uh, very strange relationships uh, with people that you meet online and after a while you feel like you know them but you you really don't know them you just know interactions that you've had with them but it sort of becomes like there's these uh, people that you've 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 interacted with for such long periods of time so many times uh, during you know different parts of the day uh, but you may never actually meet them but it, it's weird you ha- sort of have like this online world and you have this this offline world um, of, of, of people I mean the, both of us yes. sort of met online I used to, it sounds so weird it sounds so inappropriate I used to follow you and I <laughs> promise you I did not have a white van at the time now now of course <laughs> it would be much more they should actually have an avatar of a white van <laughs> I would bet you there is one there's probably an account called at white van on Twitter right now <laughs> I think it would also be good if you could put that onto someone so that other people knew hey when so and so says they're following right. you it's like when you have to go door to door to announce that you you have uh, had some, uh, some some problem in your past uh, when you move into someone's yes. neighborhood. Yes, they just put a little at, at, you know white van sign on their on their account instead of verified. Right. It'd be the opposite of verified. It'd be like a little <laughs> white van verification. Um, I want to start at the beginning because you're were such an inspiration to me in getting like my career started because you came from such a different route. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you started your first. Tumblers, mm-hmm. you had a bunch, and and I don't know if Neighborhooder would go under a Tumblr or yeah, yeah, it was okay. based uh, on Tumblr, yeah, Neighborhooder. What were your goals at the time when you were starting? You had a sports one, mm-hmm. SB, right? I and, worked for SB okay. Nation uh, for for a brief time, um, but that came later. That came okay. much later than when I first started with Tumblr. At first, I, I didn't really approach um, using Tumblr. Uh, in a serious way. It was basically a place to host photos that I was taking with my phone. Uh, Was that Hotfoot or no? Hotfoot was something I created uh, because I had met Matthew Cerrone, who uh, runs Mets Blog. And uh, he has another, he has an interesting uh, story as well, because um, Matt uh, and I are both big Met fans. 
and he, as a college project, created that blog, uh, and it evolved into this huge um, thing that became like the best resource for all Mets fans to find out what's going on with the team. He got tons and tons of traffic. Um, I, I consider him sort of the pioneer for uh, sports bloggers because he was one of the first ones who really uh, made it a huge thing. And Matt was eventually hired by uh, SNY, the, the big uh, Mets broadcaster here in New York. Uh, Matt asked me to, to be a contributor uh, after I had helped him with some web development stuff. I was always a technologist, a, a person who was m more uh, trained in design and, and um, uh, technology, uh, but by helping him out with some design stuff and then starting to write for him, that sort of took me in a direction where I, I created my own Mets blog called Hot, Flo Hot Foot. Not to be confused with any other type of fetish blogs. Yeah, that's, a, that's often a <laughs> confusion. And the whole Hot Foot thing, I, I, I could quickly tell you the story, is that in, the, in 1986 when the Mets uh, were much more successful than they are today, they used to, uh, it was actually Roger McDowell, who was a bull, bullpen pitcher, and um, Howard Johnson, and they used to roll the, uh, a bunch of cigarettes with a, a wad of gum, and they used to stick it on the back of the foot of their uh, teammates in the dugout, and they would light those cigarettes on fire, and it took a while for them to realize that their foot was on fire, and they called it a hot foot. They used to do this all the time in the dugout. It was, it was, and I don't think um, that was really carried on since. I mean, there's all sorts of pranks that you see in baseball, but that was actually, it, that's, it's really kind of... Uh, Kind of dangerous, but they got I know, away with it. I but I love pranks, and I love that they did that to each other. Yeah. I also feel like the tagline for any Mets fan should be, it's not my fault, but it is my problem. <laughs> it is. It's, <laughs> I, I, unlike Cub, Cub fans who have absolutely no um, success in their entire history, Mets fans, I think, uh, overemphasize their agony because we actually have been fairly successful. I mean, the Mets won two championships in their time, and there are still a lot of teams in baseball that have not even sniffed a World Series. So You don't sound defensive about it at all. No. So <laughs> before you were talking about um, you were starting to put photos online, and I interrupted you. Um, no. But that was how you had started going on Tumblr. Yeah, it was, uh, it was just a personal blog. And then I think I started to see the potential to use it to um, – to use it as a platform to talk about things that were going on in the world. And I also found other people who are on Tumblr who were really focused on big uh, world events, uh, things that are happening in Bahrain and Syria and Iraq and Iran. And uh, I was trying to kind of uh, curate all those different things that they were talking about, some of them actually living in those countries and experiencing it firsthand and trying to be someone who could kind of um, navigate you through all the different uh, blogs that were covering things that were going on in different parts of the world. And this was Soup Soup? Yeah. And is there a soup blog? Is there a blog about soup called News News? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> where, did, where did Soup Soup come from as a nickname? Um, I got that nickname when I was growing up uh, by a friend of mine. Uh, his name was Chad Hanchelowitz. Uh, Wait, sorry, can you say his name again? Chad Ancelowitz. <laughs> and uh, you know, we used to play basketball and football. And, and we used to, when I was, I was pretty active as a, as, a, as a young kid. And it's just like, you know, there's so many Anthonys in the neighborhood. 
uh, you know, a, a lot of people uh, in New Jersey, they come from Brooklyn and Staten Island, and, uh, and you have a very, you know, a lot of Italians that grow up in those areas and then move to Jersey. I, I'm being one of them that grew up, well, didn't grow up, but was born in the Bronx and moved to New Jersey uh, fairly early in my childhood. And uh, there's so many Anthonys, you know, you had to give everybody a nickname. And somehow, soup, I have absolutely no idea where the nickname Soup came from, but I was called Soup and by this guy, Chad, and it just stuck with me. And my friends still call me Soup to this day. He used to call my house and ask my mom if Soup was there, and my mom wouldn't even think twice and hand me the phone after they said that. Did your, did you, were your parents invested in, in technology? Because, you, you, you know, now, today, every reporter wishes they had your skill base to start out with, which is, as you said, being able to design and, and genuinely loving technology mm-hmm. versus the, I don't know, the stereotype of the kind of, like, wonky reporter who just wants to write. Right. Um, were your parents, like, into technology? and? Yeah, my father um, was the uh, IT director for uh, for a, a bank uh, overseas, and uh, he um, had access to technology, and you know felt like uh, it was important for us um, to learn um, because he he felt the future was in technology, and um, I had a Commodore sixty four, and I had all a... right. Let's not show off here. I mean that the Commodore sixty four for people who don't know was, real... was on silver spoons. <laughs> And Ricky Schroeder had one. So. Yeah, I was very uh, lucky to have access to computers when I was growing up. Um, and I think, you know, I have to give my father a lot of credit by having uh, access to those computers and, and just kind of messing around with them. I, I learned a lot. But also showing you how to use it, because I, I feel like, you know, I, we're around the same age, 21. And um, no, but I mean, we are around the same <laughs> age when these things were just coming out. This is pre-email. So it's some families, I feel like they'd have a computer, but no one really used it. Mm-hmm. So somehow, like, someone sat down with you or let you know this is a good thing to use, and then you should give yourself credit for right. experimenting with it. Because I, yeah. I feel like they, they sort of sat idly in many people's <laughs> homes, I may be projecting, mm-hmm. where people sort of didn't know how to interact <laughs> with them. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, I think I just had a natural curiosity to try to figure out how it worked. And um, I didn't read a lot of books or... Um, go to any classes or anything. I just kind of, through trial and error, figure things out. Um, and the, I mean, if you talk to people who are very serious about computers and um, and programming, the whole process of learning it is through trial and error. And they, most of the time, things don't work, and you have to keep trying and trying and failing until you finally uh, realize the the proper way to do all those things. And I think uh, the internet was a huge. Uh, shift because then there was tons of information available um, without having to really use too much effort to seek it out. And that's when I really started to learn about web design and I picked up, uh, you know, how to develop web pages through just tutorials and instructions that were uh, available through the internet. And it seems like you were working for these huge companies. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it gets a sense of how to do it on such a wide scale, Mm -hmm. which is sort of the opposite of Tumblr, where you, yeah. it's it's such a personalized, you know, let me see what I can do with this. Right. But it seems like your day jobs at the time, am I right? Were, were... Well, my first job I worked at, um, in a, in a, in a, my first job in technology was um, working for a consulting company. It was, it's really boring. It was like developing applications for um, 
traders on Wall Street. You're right. It is really boring. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, eventually I le left that and then I went to work for Newmark, um, which uh, is the commercial real estate, uh, um, probably one of the bigger ones here in New York. And I helped develop all their websites and I applied all the stuff that I learned about building websites to that. Um, and, um, and that, and then I just worked in different technology jobs at different large companies so for a while. When did you start writing? Because at the same time you were contributing to all these different blogs. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I had like this epiphany somewhere in my 20s that I wanted to be a journalist. And uh, I didn't go directly into the business of journalism, but I started writing a lot on my own um, and, uh, and using blogs as the platform for that. And I think the time when David Carr took something that I wrote on my Tumblr um, and mentioned it in the New York Times, that was sort of what took it to another level because a lot of people noticed that I was writing as a freelancer and, uh, and I was working at Reuters at the time, but in a, in a capacity as a technologist. And then they decided, uh, okay, this guy's doing all this freelance writing. We should consider maybe bringing him over to the editorial side. And, uh, and that kind of shifted me from technology into being more of a, a journalist and a, and a person that works in editorial. By the time Reuters got you, because by then you were actually totally respected and well-known by um, fellow reporters and newsmakers, were you aware that you're like, oh, I'm, I'm making technology accessible for these reporters? Mm -hmm. Because I think part of the problem, and I'm coming obviously from the entertainment world, but the entertainment world is so slow to embrace these new platforms. Yeah. And that was certainly true for journalists. And it's a fear that you're going to no longer be necessary yeah. in part. And here you are like showing like, actually, that's not the case. Right. It's just we're delivering it differently. Yeah. I mean, I think the benefit of working at Reuters was that I, I did learn a lot from them as much as they learned from me is because um, there's such a... Um, a desire to, to make sure that everything that they're reporting is well vetted and uh, you know the the steps that it takes to deliver really good journalism um, uh, and, and getting that base that foundation by uh, being at a company like that was a huge uh, benefit to me um, and the way I feel like I hopefully gave back was I was trying to show them all these different um, ways that they could uh, tell stories in ways that they hadn't done in the past and reach people that they weren't reaching through social media. Um, and there was integration of social media through all the different platforms at Reuters. They started to consider, well, what we're delivering um, now is going to be uh, taken over by people going to social media first. People go to Facebook and get their news and they go to Twitter to get their news. How do we continue to exist in that sort of environment. And that, that's something they're still struggling with and a lot of other media companies are still struggling with. How do you fact check stories when they're unfolding? You know, when it when mm -hmm. it's like, it's not a finite, like if something's on fire, it's pretty easy. You see right. it's on fire. But like if you have a case, whether it's like Snowden or something that where the you don't actually know the final answer, but right. you need to be letting people know that this is happening. Yeah, I think uh, you need to be as transparent as possible about the source of, the inf of your information. Um, and I prefer not to uh, rely too much on 
some another media organization reporting something because it starts to become the telephone game and information breaks down as it goes from one person to the next. So I try to get as close to the original source as I possibly can. Sometimes you can't do that um, and you're relying on another organization's reporting. And if you do, you just have to be, you have to put that out um, as transparently as possible. And you put caveats around the things um, that you're not 100% sure about. I try to not report those things at all, if possible. Is that right? So you'll like abstain. Like I was just trying yeah. to figure out if you're if you're learning about a source online, let's mm-hmm. say, and you can't contact the source. Let's say they're in a different country or something right. like that. Um, how do you know to, whether you can rely on that source? Or not? I won't. I, I will try to avoid um, putting it out there. I'll keep it for myself as. Uh, as a way to continue to build upon my knowledge to the point where hopefully at some um, point in the future I can gather enough information where I feel comfortable enough making it public. But for the most part, I take in a lot and I put back out very little uh, because not everything that I'm seeing I can feel comfortable uh, enough with the information that I have. Are there topics that you just avoid? Like if you watch Rachel Maddow's show, she really doesn't cover education. Mm-hmm. It's just not her beat. But she yeah. has other beats, you know, completely, you know, healthcare, she's totally all right. on top of. Are there beats that you just are not either interested in personally or just avoid for fear of, of not being able to cover well? Well, my position now is that I'm not um, do it, primarily doing the reporting. Uh, I'm managing a team of people who are reporting, which allows me to uh, cover things that I normally probably wouldn't cover. And I don't know if it, I don't think there's a subject that I, I mean, I, I don't really get into celebrity stuff and I don't get into like, uh, too much entertainment. Uh, I try to avoid, uh, the certain areas of politics where it's just the punditry and not really like, yeah. And that really kind of, I think is way too much part of what goes on with coverage, it's just a back and forth of pundits of what they think is right and wrong. And no one outside of that world cares. Like, yeah. it's just the people in that world right? that they love it so much. It's such a small group of people that actually care about, it's like the Beltway, DC. Oh my God. And, and they, they, I think they have an outside idea of the public's desire for that type of information. Yeah. I'm just speaking personally because I just came home from Thanksgiving where I just had to hear, <laughs> have you read? Like, yeah, because the people at your Thanksgiving uh, dinner table are probably no less informed than the people that are going on these talk shows and spouting off their political views about things. I've, I know my parents just wish Ezra Klein was their child. Like, I just know. Every time they look at me, they're just like, it should have been Ezra. <laughs> um, do you create... Um, all right, so I'm going to make another long-winded statement, and then hopefully a question will come out of it. I'm really trying to ask, like, how you create your boundaries as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question, like, was inspired by I met a, a tech reporter, and he said, I don't report something unless I deem it on the record. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was, while very nice to the person he's talking to, like, he'll let them know how hey, right. this is on the record. I thought that was a really actually... Um, I thought it was a really self-absorbed idea because ultimately it was like, I decide it's news now mm-hmm. and now it's news. Right. Versus like, well, that person could have just revealed something that's actually really important. Right. But because you didn't say it's on the record, right. you're not going to report it. Uh, I used to believe that you needed to get consent from for, for everything that someone tells you. Um, and... 
all these uh, folks that I, 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 I came in contact with at Reuters uh, kind of schooled me on that because it actually puts you at a huge disadvantage as a reporter and it's doing a disservice to your readers. Um, you don't need to get permission to put something on or off the record. It's, it, and, and I think there's a huge problem with uh, political reporting. And um, you see this with uh, the White House where um, there's heavy uh, filtering of all the information that comes out whether they want things to be put on the record or not put on the record. Uh, and there's all these background um, interviews that are, are done. And um, I feel like it's, it's really bad because it's, it's, it's doing public relations. It's not doing journalism. So if someone tells you something and they don't, didn't realize that they just told you it, they don't get a free pass because uh, right afterwards they say that wasn't on the record. That's not how it works. Um, you could lose that person in the future. Um, and some people will decide, well, I have to weigh the pros and cons of reporting this because they may not talk to me in the future. But um, I, I, I think if you're a good journalist, um, it, 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 you're gonna do less of that uh, than you would, um, uh, unless you're kind of looking to become like this access-driven uh, journalist uh, where you're, you're simply re reporting things in a way that you know that you'll continue to be in the good graces of all the people that you report on. That's not the way it should work. And then what about in terms of making friends? Like um, if you know that you're covering a certain company or a certain mm -hmm. sector, um, do you decide who you're in a book club with, who you go to the gym with? And right. obviously you don't read, so you don't need to worry about the book club. But, <laughs> but I mean, how you how you conduct those relationships? Are yeah. you aware of that? Do you think about those things? Um, when befriending people? You really can't. Um, as a journalist, you should be as transparent as you possibly can about those relationships, and you should disclose them. Um, but I think if you're a journalist, your friends need to realize that it's not personal, it's business. <laughs> and if I happen to have to say something badly about the company you work for, or the industry that you work in, that's part of the deal, and um, I can't um, I can't hold that back because I may upset people who are are close to me. So it's it's difficult, but I, I mean that's sort of the, the the decision that you make when you become a journalist. I noticed on your Facebook you have the uh, quote from the Four Agreements, the guy who wrote the Four Agreements. Yeah, <laughs> and one of them is to not take things personally. Right. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I think, um, and there's a lot of in order to be a good journalist, I think you have to do a lot of um, uh, what sometimes can seem like uh, uh, contentious back and forth, but you're really trying to get to the the, the heart of something or the, the, the real truth of it. Um, and this plays out a lot on Twitter now. You see like people going back and forth, uh, trying to get information out of people and, uh, uh, and trying to win debates. But, um, and some people think that you know, these two people that may be going back and forth don't like each other, but it's really just a matter of trying to get to the heart of a matter. Uh, debate doesn't always mean that uh, there's an antagonism. It's just trying to, you know, get to the root of something. I do see these, your Twitter fights all the time. <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask what you keep private and how, how you 
manage your public persona versus private persona? Because you've written mm-hmm. about, you know, Facebook privacy things, and if people really cared, they'd get off Facebook. Right. Um, and I wanted to know uh, things you do for yourself. I, I, I decide what I feel comfortable putting out um, that's private or public to me. Um, I tend not to put out so much that's uh, part of my my private life. Uh, you know, I'll put out photos and, you know, we had Thanksgiving and I put up some photos of us having Thanksgiving dinner. But I, there's people who are just kind of giving you this running commentary of their lives 24-7. And I think I realize that most people really could care less and that's not um, a majority of what I do. And I feel like I spend so much time uh, doing work online. It's all really kind of the focus of, you know, what I put out. So there's not really much time for me to, to, to share other things that are more personal in my life on, on social. Do you feel, okay, so the other thing I was going to ask is like when you have something in print that you've written, mm-hmm. I feel like you have this thing that's going to live beyond you or that mm-hmm. at least there's a fantasy, of yeah. that, which is not Zen by any standard. <laughs> but now in this age, you're only as relevant as your last tweet. <laughs> so do you feel sort of, do you miss that? Do you miss having, you know, here's my byline and mm-hmm. here's my, the article that I wrote? I feel, I don't know. Because it's gone. You know, I don't now know. you have 70,000 tweets past, you know, that thing that you wrote. Yeah, I mean, with Twitter, it's oh. definitely fleeting. But, um, you know, uh, the, what, we've, what we used to have in newspapers and in magazines, I think actually lives on longer um, very simply because the medium uh, will will be able to outlast um, the printed page. So as long as you're doing the same type of journalism you did in a printed format in digital, that's going to you know probably uh, have a longer shelf life than than the the past stuff that that people had done. Uh, it's about putting work out that's going to make an impact and that'll really determine whether or not it lives on beyond you. If you're just kind of spending a lot of time on superfluous stuff and not on things that'll make an impact in the world, um, then you're not going to have a legacy. Nobody's going to remember or care anything that you did. Do you miss um, making the news now that your focus is more on breaking the news? I just wanted to use one (laughs) cliche. I feel like if I'm talking to a journalist. I think journalists uh, are... If you're a real journalist, your your desire is less to be the subject and more to try to find the the really interesting uh, subjects that are out there to talk about and 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 the stories to report on. That goes back to being a reporter versus being a, a media person. Yeah, yeah. I think that that you know, what or you're a saying. pundit or a yeah. columnist or somebody who's more about their their point of view and trying to make that the the sole focus of things. But as an editor and overseeing all of these yeah. other writers, do you miss writing? Uh, I do. And I still try to do it uh, when I have time to do it. Uh, and sometimes, like this morning, uh, I had to jump in and, and write a few things myself because I just didn't have any, anybody available. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm forced to, to still write sometimes. And then there's other times where I just really want to. And I, and I will do it. And did you move on to a more managerial position now you're at Circa mm-hmm. because you're like, I have a family and I need to have more stability. Is it this sort of a similar model to um, 
you know, editors of publishing agencies mm -hmm. or editors at newspapers who most of them used to be writers. Yeah, I was actually reading something about Peter Kaplan who just passed yes. um, and how he um, moved into more of an editor's role because he felt like it was a more stable uh, life. That wasn't really the reason why I did it. Uh, the reason I did it was because I thought Circa was um, trying to do something new uh, and could potentially um, change the way that um, that people view journalism and, and and allow them to have a whole new uh, platform to take in journalism because I feel like people are using their phones now more than anything else and nobody's really doing it in a really smart way and I thought that was interesting um, but the byproduct of moving into more of a managerial and an editorial role um, uh, overseeing a team I I don't know that it's that much of a of a, a time saver because I still I I mean my wife can tell you that I still have to spend a lot of time working uh, I don't have you know normal hours even though I moved into that different role um, and the news really dictates when I when I have to work so it's not a less stressful job at all I would think it would be more stressful actually just coming from writing to managing it's such a different skill set yeah um, but I hope that it makes a lot more money um, it, it's it's better, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting in your seven-story um, brownstone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> overlooking Central Park. I do love that your bathroom, you can actually, there's a glass floor on the bottom, and you can just see yeah. the people down did, the peons Did, did you see the Rolls-Royce uh, parked I outside? I thought that was such a nice touch. <laughs> um, MTV is going to be filming Cribs here uh, next week. <laughs> can you, I can't imagine a more boring reality show than filming uh, journalists at work. I know. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> and that you got a, it's so sweet that you got a pony for your yeah um, his name's Dallas Dallas from your son to be um, and I'm sure that's either a reference to the yeah. football team and not the television show um, yeah is that correct <laughs> I wanted to ask like how you describe your legacy and, and how I mean obviously you tell everyone about your legacy but if you were to mm -hmm. um, how would you describe it Oh God, I'm way. I hope hope I'm way too young to to even have a legacy yet. <laughs> um, I don't know. Hopefully, I think what I'm embarking on now will have an impact because uh, I think uh, what we're working on at Circa is uh, is is different and could um, be a shift in in how journalism and, and news works. So um, how by by being on email and by being delivered faster by mobile by trying to figure out a way to do um, to, to deliver news in in a mobile format in a way that hasn't been done before and also changing the delivery of news I mean there's a, a lot of innovations that I think that they've created with um, the way you can follow individual stories um, not get redundant information because you know when when there's a story that evolves over months and years you keep having to read all the stuff that you already knew about it, and Circa's delivering just the new information. Yeah, so but I feel like retweeting leads to a lot of the repetition, too. Yeah, no, that, that's true, but but what we're do, saying is this is an alternative to following news through Twitter. You, we'll give you the digest of what you need to know, and we'll also only tell you the stuff that you didn't already read, so it kind of even saves you even more time. So it's curating it for you. 
Yeah, I'm mean, curating tends to sound like you're you're taking information from other places and and then putting it together. Let me kill, clarify. I meant like in the morning, WNYC, which is my radio station, sends me an email and here are the top stories right. that we're going to be focusing on today. The New York Times also sends me an email and it says here are the top stories that we're going to be focusing. Yeah. Or that you should read in the paper. And when I got it in print, I would end up reading stories that I didn't know about right. because I was getting it in print. Right. But I also would never get any of my work done because I was reading the entire newspaper. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a, that's a simplified version of what one aspect of what we're doing. Um, and it's definitely a, a way to, to know all the major stuff that you need to know. But I think the other aspect of it is that you'll continue to stay uh, informed about those things in a way that's not going to be overwhelming because we just tell you the new stuff that happened about those uh, different stories that you cared about. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about your teaching because I thought that was lovely that you're also <laughs> you're also a professor, <laughs> Professor De Rosa, <laughs> Professor De La Rosa, <laughs> depending on who, who the student is. <laughs> what are you teaching? Uh, I taught a class uh, to try to give uh, these NYU students um, methods to verify information that's surfacing on social media because uh, reporters now have to spend a lot of time uh, weeding through information that comes up on Twitter and Facebook. How do you verify it? How do you make sure what you're uh, reporting is accurate? Uh, it's a lot of the same tools. Um, How and, do you do that? I mean, you're, you're applying the same journalism that you did to traditional sources, the people that you met in person, the people that you spoke to on the phone. Um, social media uh, often gives you a lot more uh, information and uh, evidence that you can use to vet and verify information. So often people have links to uh, their bio or, or, or other um, websites that they've also uh, have a social media imprint on. You can track all that stuff down. Um, you can use things like TinEye. So when someone posts a photo, you can do a reverse photo search to see if there's other uh, websites that also have that photo. So a lot of times people will, will take a photo that was taken like three, four years ago and say that that, you know, is something that just happened. Um, uh, there's ways to look at the data on the photo. So with digital cameras, there's something called EXIF data. And there's actually information about uh, location of the photo, what time of day it was shot. So there's like all this sort of CSI um, uh, you know, detective work that journalists now need to understand and know. And I, I wanted to train them in some of these tools and methods that they can use uh, in, the in the digital realm to do reporting. Because I feel like, you know, it's important to know traditional journalism um, standards, ethics, uh, ways that they, they learn to report. But there's all these digital tools and information that services on digital that a lot of reporters and journalists still don't know how to use. And that was kind of the focus of what I was teaching them. I'm still trying to figure out how to set up Roku. <laughs> what is the percentage of your time spent reporting in pajamas versus uh, normal streetwear? <laughs> uh, Reuters, I spent most of my time in the office, right? But with Circa, it's, it's really great because I don't have to be in an office all the time. We're, we're spread out all over the place. Uh, reporters um, uh, are in different parts of the world. So I, I don't have all of them in one place that I can go into an office with. So 
what I'll generally do is, uh, if it gets real busy in the morning, I'll start out working here, and sometimes I'll wind up working here the whole day. But so sometimes I go into the office in Soho. Note to listeners, he did not answer the question, nor did he describe <laughs> would, whether he wears footy pajamas or boxers. <laughs> I would say 75% of the time I'm reporting in my, uh, in my pajamas these days. Anthony Neuros, I hope you continue to be reporting, whether it's in pajamas, footy pajamas, or boxers. Um, it is such a pleasure to have you on. I really was so inspired by you like figuring out how you wanted to be a journalist, breaking into what was very much a traditional... <laughs> route and doing it your own way and then reinventing the wheel. And I love how, how successful and major uh, the Employee of the Week uh, podcast has become. So so successful that it went from Employee of the Month to Employee of the Week in just that one moment. <laughs> um, well, it's nice to share glass castles to have our offices right next That's to each great. other. I can see you. Um, from, I can wave to you. Yes, from from my 17-story brownstone also in Central Park. So it's, it's nice to, to finally um, be at the head of, of the media world with you. Thank you so, so much, Anthony. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Joel Arnold for editing this together. Thanks to all of you for listening. Definitely run, don't walk to get tickets or run, don't walk to the internet to get tickets for our next live shows, December 18th at UCB and January 8th at Joe's Pub with ridiculously exciting guests. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to sign up for the mailing list. And thank you to all of you for listening. It's just such a privilege and a joy. Talk to you soon. Bye.